0: Life of compassion is a more rewarding one, and it's a more giving and generous one, and it provides better care for patients, but it also, it will lead to a richer life for you. From Spa Damron Tenney, it's the
1: Prosperous Doc Podcast. Real stories, real inspiration, real growth. A show for doctors who are ready to improve their overall wellness in every aspect of life. Now, here's your host, Shane Tenney. Well, today on the Prosperous Doc Podcast, we are going to talk about grief and loss and vulnerability and compassion and the impact they have or should have on us. And I'm reminded that just a week ago, my dear friend buried his wife from COVID. And certainly many of you uh, have experienced more than your share of pain and fear and grief and loss over the pandemic. In 2015, my guest today, uh, Dr. Joseph Stern, experienced the loss of his sister and her husband, his brother-in-law, in in the span of two years, and it affected him deeply uh, as a brother and has forever altered his approach as a physician. Dr. Stern is a neurosurgeon with Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine in North Carolina, and he has written a book, uh, Grief Connects Us, which really gives an open and honest account of his story and his family and the look at the tension which is unique to those in medicine of being clinical and detached and that tension with being compassionate and vulnerable. And so we're going to talk with him today about his perspective on being on the patient caregiver side and how that has impacted uh, his care of patients. So uh, Dr. Stern, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Shane. Would you start maybe back in 2014 and kind of paint the picture of your life and family and practice and the day you got the news
0: about Victoria? So I, I, I'm a practicing neurosurgeon and I'm pretty busy and you get kind of consumed with daily activities and married with three kids. And so it's a pretty busy life anyway. So out of the blue, my sister Victoria called and said that you know she had been diagnosed with leukemia, And was in the hospital. She, I live in North Carolina in Greensboro. She lives in uh, or lived in um, Santa Monica, California. So it's long distance between us. We really didn't see each other as much as we used to, and and kind of I kind of felt bad about that. And so when she called, it was a shock. But that was sort of the beginning of this. What turned it in, into a pretty harrowing adventure. She was admitted to the hospital and basically spent the next um, five plus months in the hospital without ever leaving and occasionally left and for a brief hiatus. But then she had a bone marrow transplant. She was diagnosed with something called AML, which is acute myeloid leukemia, and it's a pretty bad spectrum of leukemias. She had one of the worst possible uh, chromosomal abnormalities, something called uh, monosomy 7, which carries about a 6% five-year survival rate. So it was pretty atrocious. And so I, I got to know her oncologist, um, who's super nice and is actually uh, interviewed in the, in the book. And he said, and one of the first things he said to me was, you know, don't look this up, don't Google this. You want to, um, you're not gonna like what you see. So of course I went to the computer and Googled it and it's like, this is horrible. You know, and I, I deal with difficult illnesses and um, kind of coming to terms with that was pretty frightening.
1: And you said in the book that you and your family, you and your sisters in Victoria had been close as children, but of course, geography and life had kind of separated you. But this call that you got from her sharing her diagnosis kind of rapidly threw you back into into reuniting and kind of reforming your relationship as you spent time visiting and helping and translating the, all the medical jargon for for she and her husband?
0: You know, it's funny because my other sister, Caroline, felt badly because she said she really, really didn't feel like she had much to offer. And I felt in this situation, one of the nice things about being a doctor was I had some knowledge and I had some ability to interpret things. And so I did feel that uh, that felt really good that, you know, she needed my help and I was able to help her. But one of the things that quickly happened to me was I discovered utterly terrifying. It is to be a patient. And when you're dealing with a mortal illness, how just your life gets totally turned upside down. And so I found, um, you know, before I, I, this is in the book, but before I went there, I was taking care of a patient and done brain surgery on him. And I just, all of a sudden it's like life became too intense. I, there were the guardrails that I had put in place sort of disappeared. And I found it sort of forced vulnerability in the sense that I just was really upset. So I decided I would get on a plane and go and see her and spend time with her. And that was just the most wonderful experience because it was it was kind of reuniting and sort of, you know, you just start. You just reconnect, you know, so
1: it was it was very
0: powerful. There must have been a moment
1: when you went to see her and you walk in the hospital where she had been, where she was being cared for and realized, oh, I'm not the doctor here. Right. I'm the brother
0: of a patient. What was that like? Well, you you know, you know how hospitals work. Um, but, you know, the first time I visited her, she had already been transferred to City of Hope, which is a kind of major tertiary or quaternary care center from her initial hospital for her bone marrow transplant. And it was just a very, it was kind of a surreal experience, you know, and now we spend all our time in masks and COVID, but for for being on a leukemia and bone marrow transplant ward, you're basically in Gown and gloves and mask and hat, and you spend your entire day like that. And so, it was very strange. There were two moments: one when I followed the attending doctor out of the room, and she just sort of looked at me like, "Where are you going?" And then I, and then later on, when my sister had had her her transplant, I came back to kind of sit with her, and she had developed some high spiking fevers, and then some kind of pulmonary infection. And they did a bronchoscopy. And this pulmonologist was very nice and was talking to me. And then I just started walking back with him toward the OR and he looked like, you're not coming back here. You know, so I, I definitely was a fish out of water. And I kind of you recognize the patterns and the processes, but you realize it's not your place. And it feels it feels surprisingly foreign. I mean, you 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 know so much of what is done, but just being in another hospital where everything is different, it feels it's kind of eerie. I guess from that experience, I felt what it was like to be a patient. I kind of had a window that maybe I would never had before, you know, because I've always been, you know, patients are the other people I'm healthy, my family's healthy. And then, and then all of a sudden you go, no, you know, you really get it. And it kind of hits you in the head, like a two by four almost.
1: Yeah. And, and I want to ask you in a, in a minute about kind of how this has begun to impact the way, you now interact with the families of your patients and things. But I know, um, as uh, Victoria's leukemia, as you said, was very severe and and progressed rapidly. And one of the things that you described was just her, what I characterize as kind of a vivacious personality and her positive outlook, and just her, her choice to really be adamant about focusing on getting better and not wanting to discuss even the possibility of death. And yet, given your experience and ability to understand the vocabulary, you were processing all the information with a better recognition of the possibility. How did you find balancing kind of what you knew to be true
0: with her, the patient's outlook and desire? So that was one of the biggest, my biggest struggles in this whole experience was that I knew that she wanted my help, wanted my interpretation of the facts, but only so much. She had, drawn some very clear boundaries. She was not interested in talking about dying. She was not interested in talking about the possibility of dying. You know, she wrote a journal of her illness and she initially planned for it to be a one woman show uh, that she was going to perform. So one of the things about my sister is she's incredibly extroverted and a great actress and fun to be around. And I feel in the op- I'm the opposite. It's like this, you know, I talk to patients and I'm pr- fairly introverted. So this this whole process has kind of forced me to become someone different than I was. You know, I feel a bit like it's like you know, my sister is has affected me and sort of changed me a little bit. And I'm, but when I was there, you know, she really would not talk about dying, and I I really struggled with that. I was one of the one of the questions that I asked. I did in the book. I did a series of interviews with patients and with doctors and asked, you know, kind of how do you deal with that and how do you? One of my friends in oncologist said, you know you really have to be with the patient where they want, where they are. You can't hit them over the head with information or, you know, prognosis or, and I think a lot of times doctors do that. You know, they feel like they, they tell people facts or like treatment details or like, you know, when you're doing an informed consent, they, they give very blunt. And some people want to know a lot and some people don't want to know any of it. And you, you kind of have to go with that. Um, what made me sad was i felt that there were missed opportunities that when my sister's um, bone marrow transplant didn't work and she was relapsed very very soon after her transplant they put her in a very bad prognostic group with a very very low likelihood of survival her oncologist knew that she was not going to live but never really sat down and talked with her you know they tried they tried other chemotherapy and then um i sort of felt like it was a bit of a magic show where they' kind of distracting her from the reality. And I guess, you know, if the patient doesn't want to talk about it, you don't have to. But I also feel that if you don't talk about it, well, then guess what? You know, if you die, suddenly you don't have a chance to say goodbye to your kids. You don't have a chance to say goodbye to your husband and you just disappear. And I feel that that was a real loss for, for her and for her family. And so I, I do think that one of the things you know, it's not to me, it's not sufficient just to say uh, eh, patient doesn't want to talk about it. I'm not going to talk about it, because I think there are a lot of ways of approaching patients with kind of honest and direct communication where they will talk to you and they do need to talk to you about it. And So you can't just sort of say, well, you know, I'm not this patient doesn't want to talk about the possibility of dying. Therefore, I'm not going to address that at all. That seems to me, that seems um like an abrogation of your duties and also puts you in a very strange position where how can you really make treatment decisions and plans and when you don't even address what's really going on? So I think there are different ways of doing it, but I think that you have to have those conversations. And I think you know, it was interesting because um, Sean Fisher is her, her oncologist and he said, because I said, you know, it seemed that my sister was really, you know, completely in denial. And he said, I don't think she was in denial at all. He said, I think she got it right away and she just didn't, she just chose not to go there. And so he said, I, do, I did not think she was in, in denial. I felt that she was because she just wouldn't talk about it. But I think in her heart, she probably, you know, she knew that things were bad and, and it wasn't very likely um, that things would go well. But one of the things that's interesting, and I, I, this is also toward the end of the book, is, is a, um, there's a study from Duke where they looked at people with exactly the same condition, and almost all of them choose the same thing, you know, isolated from family because of worry about infection. They're far from home. They're in hospitals for months and months and months out of time. Sometimes those patients will say that they've got a 90% chance of living and the doctor will say, actually, it's about a 10% chance of living. So they put their positivism and hope into treatments that sometimes aren't really probably the best things to to do. You know, like, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. And that was one of the things I also thought was a challenge was I think a lot of doctors Are more circumspect about the treatments that are being recommended, and maybe less likely to just sort of, just you know, say, oh, for sure, I'm going to do that. You know, you tell me to do that, I'll do that. You know, if you you just run through this burning building, you'll make it through. Okay, I'll go. You know, and and I feel like I'm a lot more dubious of that. I'm I'm less likely to just jump in and do whatever the doctor says. And I want to kind of have some basis of well, is this useful? Is this going to be helpful, or is this going to be too much for me to go through, or is the risk so high and the benefit so low? So I think as a surgeon, I've become much more aware of that when I talk to patients. It's like I'm—I think I'm more careful about recommending surgeries, and we talk about risks, you know, more more honestly.
1: Yeah, and, and to to your point, I mean, we we all know there's value in hope, and psychology plays a difference. But I think to your story and the point you make, it an un, unwillingness, I guess, to discuss those things ends up depriving the people who are left behind of the ability to. Say goodbye, or pre-grieve, or plan, or those sorts of things. And I think even about the scenario with with Victoria's family, it was I don't think not two years after she passed, her husband had an aneurysm, and you got another
0: right. This, really this difficult was, call. and this was really kind of a horrible, horrible thing on top of a horrible thing. Where I, out for dinner with some friends and uh, with my wife, and um, got this phone call that Pat was in the emergency room at uh, UCLA and he'd had a hemorrhage in his brain and he was in a coma. I remember I, I, and he was on Coumadin, a blood thinner for, um, for a heart condition. So I'm told all this, but they didn't say, Oh, well, their son is sitting right here. They didn't tell me that. And so I said, Oh, well, he's, he's really screwed. And, and he said, well, his son is right here in your own speakerphone. It's like, great. So that was not really the greatest beginning of that situation. But what was interesting in that situation, it was like, it was the polar opposite of my sister's situation. I was, I, first of all, I was um, Pat's healthcare power of attorney. So I was entrusted with making medical decisions on his behalf. You know, my sister was someone who's completely conscious and awake and, and with it up until the time she died, who was capable of having these discussions. Pat was not capable of having any of these discussions. He had no awareness. So it was very, it was a very, very different situation. And there I found myself square in the world that I inhabit on a daily basis as a neurosurgeon, you know, taking care of patients. And, and I just thought it was absolutely horrendous. And uh, I understood what was going on, but I also felt that the kind of some, some of the doctors were wonderful. They're super compassionate, super caring. And some, it just felt very, um, it was a very tough situation. But one of the things that was interesting to me in, in dealing with my nephews, so their their names are Nick and Will. Nick was the bone marrow donor for his mother, and then did CPR on his dad after he collapsed. Um, so how'd you like to have that as a sixteen year old kid, you know? But but one of the things that happened was I was kind of terrified to talk with them about the possibility that their dad might die. And um, Pat's brother and sister in law were there with us. And we sat down and we said, you know, we're going to have a conversation about this and we're going to talk to you about this. And I think it's likely that he's not going to wake up and that he is, we're probably going to need to discuss, you know, stopping. And I was really terrified about that. And I was completely shocked by the reaction from the kids, which was, I mean, firstly, they cried a lot, but then they were grateful. And they said, thank you for being so honest with us. And they said, and so it was really stark, the contrast between, what had happened with my sister, where they're all positive and believing she's going to get better and then boom, she's dead. And they felt like they had been lied to. And then um, in this situation where we were pretty direct and it was uncomfortable and we had a challenging, very uncomfortable conversation that we didn't really want to have, but kind of felt we had to have. And in the end, it was very helpful to them. So I kind of learned a lot about how to manage myself in dealing with these conversations. And also I feel like... um, when you face one of these difficult conversations or you face a difficult situation as a physician, there's a lot, there's a part of you that says, I don't want to have this conversation, or I'm going to just sort of finesse it or do something else, or I'm busy, or we're not going to go there. And I always feel that I I didn't feel this so strongly before, but now I feel very strongly. It's like, I need to have that conversation. You know, I'm not going to put it off or say, you know, for another day, we'll talk about it. We have that conversation.
1: Right. Yeah, it's the, the truth that actually sets you free.
0: Also, I'll say, I'll say that from my own standpoint, the thing I didn't recognize, and now I guess where I'm more passionate is having that conversation liberates me too. Because if I turn my back on this awareness or I turn my back on this uh, intense emotional experience because I'm uncomfortable or I don't want to go there or I sort of hide from it, It doesn't go away. It just you just sort of bury it. And then over time, I think, you know, we talked before we started, we were talking about burnout. And I think a lot of times doctors burn out not because of the intensity of the emotions, but because of all the effort that they put into avoiding them. And so I feel that when you actually start to confront these things and you deal with the situations, it's actually it is actually a very positive experience. And it's something that I have really grown as a human being in this process. And that's one of the things that has been very um, liberating for me is that I feel like I'm a better person and a better doctor and patients get better care. Your story, and usually- yeah,
1: your your story, you know, is, is one of love and compassion and, and learning to love differently. But I guess to the point you're making here, there's, you learned a lot about death, hmm. that You didn't know even after 25 years as a neurosurgeon.
0: Right. Right? Yeah. And and the thing is, I saw a lot of death in my practice, but it's really different when it's people. I think one of the things I thought sort of my own form of magical thinking. You know, my sister was always positive, relentlessly positive. I believe that, you know, training and skill, mastery of material, I could stave off death. And the thing is, you can't. You know, you're powerless. You know, so that's very humbling and sort of it's tough. Through this journey, you
1: were kind of describing a, a bit ago, kind of walking the halls and trailing some of the attendings and realizing, oh, this isn't my place. And and you kind of started to get this growing awareness, like I'm not the, the provider here. And I get the sense you kind of began to become self-aware of your own habit of detachment and the tension that that was as, as a brother i'm wondering if kind of that that awareness or that intersection of detachment on the one side and compassion on the other is a door you go through once and then you now have new eyes when you see patients or or do you do you kind of continually have to remind yourself when it's time to make yourself available to compassion or when you need to be detached for the sake of your patients.
0: I think that's a really insightful question. And I think it is both. Um, I think it's a door you go through and you change, but also like I, because I'm aware of it, I'm going through that door all day, every day. You know, I think about it all the time. And so it's, it's a more of an awareness. I think there's an awareness of, of myself. And also I think one of the things it's I have learned is that we as neurosurgeons, tend to be fairly perfectionistic and very, you know, focused on procedures and they're very important, but also in the end, a lot of times they don't matter as much as we think they do. And so one of the things that I think is an essential skill to becoming more compassionate is to becoming self-compassionate, is to recognize I am not perfect. I am going to fail. I cannot do, I've never done a perfect surgery. I strive for that but I have to cut myself some slack. I have to humanize. If I'm going to humanize my relationship with patients, I have to humanize my relationship with myself. I have to be more tolerant of myself. I have to be more forgiving of myself. And that's a hard lesson because I think we tend to be very kind of hyper-competitive, hyper-critical, perfectionistic, and those things are sort of dead ends. I think just as the detachment and distance doesn't work, the, the perfectionism doesn't work either. Yeah.
1: In fact, I wrote down one of the, something you wrote from the book that I thought was, it kind of jumped out at me. You wrote, admitting, accepting, and ultimately forgiving our failures is an essential part of becoming a healthy, mature, and effective neurosurgeon. And I think that was, you wrote that leading into this, this concept of vulnerability, and and I guess that's kind of what you're touching on is there's that constant awareness and effort during the day to find the balance between being detached enough to go do surgery on someone's brain and yet vulnerable enough to empathize and show compassion.
0: Yeah, I think both, both are both are critical uh, features of an effective doctor and certainly effective neurosurgeon which is kind of where I live. But the thing is, you have to allow yourself to be vulnerable. You have to, compassion means to suffer with. You know, I have, to, I have to recognize and appreciate your suffering. And then my commitment to you is I'm going to help you and I'm going to try to get you through that suffering. Uh, my, my commitment is not to do some perfect surgery on you. My commitment is to be there and to be available and to care. And part of that is doing surgery it's kind of strange because as i've gone matured in my job um the surgery part has become less important you know and but i feel that by being a more compassionate doctor i first of all i listen more i don't talk as much you know i'm i i'm i'm much more interested in hearing what patients have to say and what they're where they're coming from i want i want to connect with them on a personal level'll we'll talk about like their lives, their families, what's going on. and But one of the problems is that if you become vulnerable and allow yourself to be vulnerable, you are not taught in medical school or in training how to switch it on and off. You're not taught, like, how can I be vulnerable one minute and then, you know, as you say, go into the operating room and do complex surgery? That's where I talk about the concept of emotional agility, which is that I know that I need to be vulnerable. I see the ravages of, of doctors who aren't compassionate and don't have vulnerability, don't have empathy for their patients. I think they tend to overoperate, do um, sometimes unnecessary procedures, objectify patients, treat them as economic units. You know, there's a lot of kind of evil things that can happen. So you, you connect with your patient, you care about your patient, but you need to be able to flex between emotional connection on the one hand and dispassionate, you know, surgical precision on the other. And there's a big range and nobody teaches you how to do that. And so that's one of the things that I'm trying to do with this book is to chart a path, a different path where people can learn new skills, where they can embrace what they do and not be afraid, but also to kind of excel in, in all phases of their professional life. And I think the bleed over from the de- detached, distant doctor is you don't really have rich life experiences outside of work. I don't know how you can be detached and distant in a work position and then certainly switch that off and become, you know, open and vulnerable outside of work. So I don't think that works. So I think the thing is you have to be able to balance between those, but you have to be able to, if you live that life in, in all parts of your life, it's a much healthier and more rewarding experience. How do
1: you, as a neurosurgeon, you spend 14, 15, 16 years in training. And so you may never do a perfect surgery, but you know, if you did a darn good one, how do you know if you were vulnerable? For somebody listening to this podcast or somebody who reads your book and says, you know what, this is right. I'm, I'm, I want to interact with my patients differently.
0: How do they, how, how can you feel that? Or how can you read it? Or how can you know that? Well, I mean, I don't think you can fake that. I mean, you, you, okay. you, you you have an open heart and you are um i think it just there's a whole bunch of stuff that i have found very rewarding one is some mindfulness you know i started doing meditation i i feel that those get ends are you know they don't go anywhere and they're ultimately corrosive but there's some really positive ones like k- kindness and generosity and I mean, it just feels so much better. Have you had to change your clinic schedule to make more time? um, I've hired more people to help me. And, I, you know, one of the things that's interesting is that empathy actually doesn't take much time. You know, so it's not like you have to devote more time. I think that's a common myth is that people think, well if I'm going to be empathic, that means I have to see fewer patients and I have to spend more time. And it's like, no, it means making eye contact. It means listening, not just wording things out. It means being more of a partner and less of a kind of um, position of authority. And you know, there's a study that says that it takes 17 seconds to establish an empathetic connection with patients. And one of the things I think I've noticed in my practice is if you invest that time Early on in your relationship with a patient, like you talk to them, like you're really interested and you want to know about them and what they're about, that carries over, that sets the framework for your relationship for the rest of your time. And so sometimes it actually saves time, you know, because you already have established that rapport And then you can have a more problem focused visit down the road and you don't have to reestablish it because it's known, you know, so, so I don't think it takes more time. I think it takes a willingness to go there. You know, I did a a TED talk and one of the things I talked about was I went into a patient's room and it was late in the afternoon and I had had already been pretty busy and there was a lot going on and there's this young woman and she was sitting there and she was um, a teacher a fourth grade teacher, and she had metastatic breast cancer to her brain. And so I had to put a reservoir in her brain to be able to give chemotherapy. Well, that's kind of end run. You're kind of a, you're, you're heading toward the end. You know, she was, she was young and vital mother and uh, wife and teacher. And I sat there and like, initially I remember, I just, I didn't want to go in there and I didn't, I didn't know how to handle it. And I'm sorry, I'm going to get emotional here. That's all right. But, But I sat there and I talked. For what it's, to her. it's worth, I cried all the way back on my flight from Dallas. So <laughs> well, I I sat with her and I just started, I I held her hand and I start I cried because <clears throat> you know I just lost my sister. Well, her name was Megan. And I asked her about what was important to her, and what she wanted. And the old me would have liked to schedule her surgery. You know, it's it's a procedure. And I sat there and she said, you know, she wanted to finish out the fourth grade with her school, with her class. And I realized that was what was important. So we scheduled the surgery around that procedure mattered. It was, it was something technical, but, and it, you know, it had, it was important, but in the end, it didn't matter as much as her saying goodbye to her students. So I thought, and it's kind of weird when I cried in front of my patient, I would never have done that before.
1: I think it's a beautiful thing that you can see in your own life. Here's what the old me would have done. And here's who I'm becoming and what I'm giving to you as my patient
0: now. Well, and she was very great, grateful and gracious to me. So that's the other thing is like I feel like you know, I've have have you read um compassionomics. Do you know that book? I don't. I thought a lot of being mortal while I was reading yours. Well, compassionomics is a really good book. And one of the things I talk about is the is the science of compassion that you know we know these things matter. They actually matter a heck of a lot. You know, if you you patients remember when their doctors are compassionate. They don't remember all the procedures. They remember how they feel or how people treat them. And those are the things that really ultimately matter. You know, the medical journeys, like when I'm talking about my sister's experience and, you know, I, I don't remember her blood counts. I, I remember how did her doctor make me feel good or bad, you know? And so I think we really underweight those things in our careers, in our in the way we do what we do. We are are so privileged to do what we do. And most people either cease to recognize that, cease to see the gift that we've been given to do what we do. And I think it's really sad, you know, because I think if you keep that front and center, it's a great job.
1: If you were designing or consulting with a medical school, on their training program or their residency program or fellowship program and things like that to make suggestions on how to make space to teach compassion? What changes would you make to kind of today's doctor training?
0: So, so that's not a theoretical for me because that's exactly what I'm doing and trying to do. And I did this. I did a talk uh, to Georgetown University Medical School faculty like last week, and they're interested in what I'm saying, and they say they want me to teach the medical students. I've taught at several medical schools, and I'm teaching students. I'm adjunct faculty at UNC Chapel Hill. And that is really kind of one of my really burning platforms is I think we need to teach students better and differently. And I went through a personal crisis to get to where I am. I should not have had to do that. If I had had tools, skills, some knowledge about all these things, I might not have been mature enough at that time to have have made this plain sailing. I think it would always have been difficult, but it would have given me some skills. I sort of felt like i had to I had to reinvent the wheel for myself and then learn about this. And then I discovered that really, people aren't being taught these things, and they need to be taught these things. I had a conversation with one professor at a prestigious medical school who said, we don't have time in our curriculum to do this. And I said to her, actually, you don't have time not to do it. I mean, this is one of the core things you've got to do. Because what we're doing is we're selecting hyper competitive, super achievers, not compassionate people. And then we want to turn them into the doctors we want them to become. Well, they're not going to be those people. They're going, these are these are very difficult skills to master. And we need to spend time and put our energies. Into training people, And one of the things that's been hard for me writing this book. I'm a fairly um, persistent person, and I think that I got that from my sister. You know, she used to try out for parts all the time and get rejected, and just go back for another edition the next day. And I kind of learned that from her. And I think the the neurosurgery thing is sort of the opposite. Like it's hard to get into, but once you're in, you're in. You know, you're it's you don't have to constantly prove yourself. But I, I told an agent one time that I wanted to change the world. And that's why I was writing this book. And he said, uh-oh, well, that's a terrible thing. We, we won't be able to publish that. And it's like, well, why? that's why I wrote this thing, is I think we need to do better and we need to do differently and we need to change the world. And so it's, it's, it's been a strange experience to, to recognize that something really needs to be done and really needs to be done differently and can be done so much better. And then to have that knowledge and put it in a book, and I think it's a pretty good book. I think it tells, it tells, tells the, it says what I wanted to say. And then you realize, well, the world isn't really interested in changing, you know, and you look and you say, We've been so nasty to each other with this whole COVID thing and all the the just meanness and the and the lack of compassion. And I don't get it. I don't get it why we don't listen to each other, why we don't cooperate with each other, why we don't, aren't more generous to each other. And so I find it strange that I feel like I'm, I know what needs from, from my own personal experience, I know what needs to change, but convincing others is challenging.
1: Yeah. Based on how you have changed and the journey you've been on to the point you're making, you wrote the book Hoping to impact your colleagues around the country or around the world and the way they interact with patients, and hoping to impact
0: patients by receiving more compassionate care from their physicians. Yeah, they need to demand it, you know, because a lot of times people just sort of suck it up and go, Hey, wasn't that very nice? But, you know, he's a good surgeon. It's like, no, he's not, he's not a good guy, you know, fine. Yeah, that, well, that was going to be my question, which is from
1: the patient side of the table, what, what can a, a patient and their family do to better communicate with their medical team or
0: to better think, demand the I type to, of care they want. I think, I think to insist on good communication and I think to expect more of their doctors and, and, and their treatment team. And I, I do think that we're headed in the right direction. So I feel like a lot of these things are improving, you know, nothing I'm saying here is revolutionary. It's all kind of sort of obvious in some ways, and I do think that, that people do recognize it's important, but I don't think they do enough. I don't think they realize how important it is. It's the exception rather than the rule. It's, you know, mm-hmm. like depending on which doctor you get, you're going to have a different kind of experience and big decisions may be made very differently because of how communication is, is made. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that's great is with palliative care. There are people who are very available, very interested in helping you through these things. But I found with my sister and, my, and her husband's case, it felt more like funeral planning. You know, that was not something that was available early on. That was available after we had decided to stop. So all the hard decisions had been made. And then all of a sudden you say, well, now we'll get palliative care. And it's kind of like, well, okay, we're going to talk about, it's really end of life. And so I feel like that all needs to be integrated an awful lot earlier. And I think there's this weird split in medical practice where like, you know, you do full on treatment and then if things aren't going well, well, then you bring in palliative care. Well, that seems a very strange way to do things. I mean, you should be having the palliative care discussions while you're making the treatment decisions. You know, it's not like, oh, we're going to treat you. And then if you're not making it, well, then we'll bring in palliative care. I signed up for a, um, course at um, Harvard Medical School. on uh, It's a palliative care training program. So I think there aren't many neurosurgeons who've done this, but it's kind of, for me, I want to try to reintegrate it
1: more effectively. Yeah, that sounds phenomenal. I guess just to wrap up, what what do you hope are the key takeaways that a reader will, will walk away from your book with?
0: I think that, you know, what I said, I think that, Life of compassion is a more rewarding one and it's a more giving and generous one and it provides better care for patients, but it also, it will lead to a richer life for you. One of the other things that I thought was really, uh, I guess, an important take-home message is that grief does connect us all, that we are all linked together. And a lot of times I find that people don't, they tend to avoid grief or they deal with it in private. They don't share it with each other. And I think it's a very important moment for people to come together. So one of the purposes of my book was taking you on the journey of my journey and also my sister's journey, but then showing how universal this is that, you know, other doctors, other patients, they all go through the same thing, as well as giving some ideas of how we might do better in the future. Dr. Stern, thanks. So much for
1: sharing your story with us and um, just what you've learned. I got a final question for you, and that is uh, that is this. Uh, through your life, you have undoubtedly bumped into so many amazing people and built upon what you have been given. You know, we all stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before us. And I'm just curious if there's somebody or a couple of key people that come to your mind that you'd like
0: to shout out here, as being just instrumental in in your own walk and journey? So, I mean, just two people from nurse from, or three people from my neurosurgical training. So one was Dr. Hoff, who featured in in my book, and he was a real mensch. He was a kind, warm, compassionate, decent man. A lot of neurosurgical training programs have been traditionally been kind of brutal and difficult, and his was very kind. So I think he set me in good stead to be able to do what I've done. And then one of my uh, junior resident Sanjay Gupta, who's now on TV all the time, was kind enough to write the foreword from the book when he could have just said, no, nah, I'm busy. I'm not going to do this. But he did. And I really am very grateful to him. And then there, I had an article in the Washington Post a little while ago about a neurosurgical surgery I, I did with a professor named Donald Ross, who was very kind and also very compassionate. And it was as if I, I felt afterwards, we did a technically great job, but when I went and talked to the family, I was kind of overwhelmed when I saw their little kids and I was really so upset. I just kind of punted and I didn't really say what was really going on. And I sort of felt at that point, like a failure, like I had failed and as a physician. And I just thought it was, it took me 20 years to come to terms with that.
1: Thanks. Thanks, thanks for sharing. Thanks for your story. And thanks all for all you do for our community. Thank you. This episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast is over, but you're not alone on your journey. Spa Dameron Tenney has been helping physicians and dentists prosper through financial planning for over 60 years. To connect with us, visit sdtplanning.com today and take your financial wellness to new levels. Join us on the next episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast.